I want you to open up to Exodus chapter 2. We're going to cover the whole chapter today, which normally, the normal way I teach, it would have been three lessons. So hang on to your booties, cuties. We're going to have to fly. But what I am going to do is uh, I'm going to read what Stephen had to say about the episodes contained in Exodus 2. And Stephen put it a lot shorter. You know, Stephen only had one sermon. And it was so powerful, full of Christology, typology. He used Joseph as a type of Christ, and then he used Moses as a type of Christ, which we'll be talking about today, because today we begin the life of Moses. Exciting. But um, he only gave one message because it was so powerful they couldn't stand it, and they stoned him to death. So in his one and only sermon, let's read starting at verse 17, when he begins to talk about Moses, Acts 7. Stephen, speaking to the Sanhedrin council, the ruling religious council of Israel who had just crucified, they were the ones responsible for having crucified the Lord. Stephen says, but when the time of the promise drew nigh, he was giving a history of Israel, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. We talked about that last time. Remember how they just kept multiplying in Egypt. Till another king arose, which knew not Pharaoh, the same dealt subtly, which means craftily, evilly, with our kindred, with our people, the Hebrews, and evil entreated our fathers so that they cast out their young children to the end they might not live. In which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was mighty in words and in deeds. And when he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. He was in the palace, the Egyptian palace, but he decided to go out to his own people, the Hebrews, the Jews. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him, and avenged him that was oppressed, and smote the Egyptian. For, this is an important verse, for he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them. But, what? They understood not. Sound familiar? And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove. Two Hebrews were fighting with each other and would have set them at one again. He wanted to be a peacemaker, saying, sirs, ye are brethren. This is two Hebrews fighting amongst themselves. He says, why, why do ye wrong one to another? And he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away. Thrust who away? Moses. Saying, who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at this saying and was a stranger in the land of Midian where he begat two sons. How long was he in Midian? 40 years. Okay, now you can flip over to Exodus chapter 2. And with this chapter, we do come to the beginning of the life of the great Moses. The redemption of Israel is bound up in the story of Moses as the redemption of mankind is bound up in the story of our Lord Jesus Christ. Moses is one of the two greatest types, prophetic pictures what this whole study is about. He's one of the two greatest picture types of the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament. Who was the other one? Joseph. We just got finished looking at him. 
And I can dogmatically state that. I can say Moses is a type of Jesus. Absolutely assured of it because God himself tells us that. Prophesying, talking to the people of Israel, the Lord in Deuteronomy 18.15. He will refer to that verse over and over again, but he said that he, God, was going to raise up a prophet from among them, from among the Israelites. He was going to raise up a prophet like unto who? Like unto Moses. And the Jews have always understood since the minute God spoke that through Moses. <laughs> he actually said like unto me. But they've always understood that to be a messianic prophecy. In other words, they've always understood that that prophet like unto Moses was speaking of the Messiah. When this prophet, uh, oh, and he also went on to say when he, when he would come, this Mo, you'll know him because he's going to be an awful lot like Moses. And when he comes, what were the people to do? They were to hear him and obey him. Did they do that? Unfortunately, no. Uh, now, Peter, in his first sermon on the day the church was born, the day of Pentecost, his first sermon, he confirmed that Deuteronomy 18.15 was about Jesus. He said that. He tied it to Jesus. Also, Stephen did. Moses is definitely a type, a picture of Jesus. And it won't even take... Half of today's lesson before you really start to believe that, because he was. And so I can probably also dogmatically make this next statement. You know, the uh, springboard text for this whole study is, what did Jesus say on the road to Emmaus to those two disciples? That sermon was not recorded, but beginning at Moses and the prophets and the rest of the Old Testament, he showed them himself. So do you think he probably talked about Moses? Oh, yeah, I am positive on the road to Emmaus he would have mentioned the fact that Moses was a picture of him you know D.L. Moody who was the, a great 19th century American evangelist he said that Moses spent 40 years thinking he was a somebody in Egypt 40 years learning he was a nobody on the backside of a desert in Midian and then 40 years discovering what God can do with the nobody as he led 2 million people around the desert for 40 years. You know, in scripture, numbers are important. If you've been in this study, you know that. 40, what does 40 symbolize in scripture? 40 is the number symbolizing a period of trial or um, testing, purification, probation. Um, for example, how many days did the flood last? Forty days. Uh, how long was Moses on Mount Sinai? Twice. Forty days. Egypt, um, I mean, Israel spied out the land for forty days. I mean, it's a great, you can answer forty because you know that's going to be what the answer is. <laughs> Elijah fasted for, <laughs> Jesus fasted for, um, uh, let's see, Jonah preached repentance to Nineveh, 40 days, very good class. So it's fitting, and we could go on and on, that's just a few examples. Um, so with all the tests and the trials that Moses went through in his 120 years, he lived to be 120, all the tests and the trials he went through, especially with his own people, it is very fitting that his 120 years consisted of three 40-year periods. 
And that's how they're easily divided. 40 years Egypt, 40 years Midian, 40 years wandering in the desert. And speaking of three divisions, the first chapter that speaks about Moses, which is Exodus chapter 2, can be divided into three sections. Each one centers on the subject of deliverance. What is the main theme for the book of Exodus? Deliverance. So the first chapter on Moses, the, the subjects all have to do with deliverance, which is a hint that Moses was indeed going to be their God-chosen deliverer, the one who would get them out of their bondage and slavery in Egypt. First of all, we have the record of his birth and his own divinely orchestrated deliverance from death. I subtitled this lesson, The Deliverance of the Deliverer, because <laughs> Moses himself was delivered from dying in the Nile River. Secondly, we're going to be looking at his first attempt to deliver his fellow Hebrews from their Egyptian taskmasters. And also, he made an attempt to deliver them from the divisiveness that was going on among themselves. Remember those 12 guys that started the 12 tribes? <sighs> They're still at it. They're still bickering with each other. Two Hebrews fighting. So that's the second part of this chapter. And then thirdly, we're going to talk about the incident of Moses delivering seven sisters from some shepherd bullies. And they were bullies. Well, when Pharaoh's slavery strategy produced uh, even stronger Hebrews, he made them slaves. And what happened? <laughs> They multiplied and they, they got stronger too, doing all that hard work. Uh, so they got stronger and they increased, their reproduction increased. Then he, we saw this last time, he commanded two midwives named Shipra and Puah to commit infanticide. You know what infanticide is? The killing of infants, of babies. He commanded them to do that on every male baby born to a Hebrew woman. But we saw that his plan again failed because the midwives feared God, praise the Lord. They feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And they cherished the lives of those innocent babies more than they even cherished their own lives. And uh, therefore he, he failed again. So his next move, Pharaoh, his next move was to issue an executive order. I'm using modern-day terms. <laughs> he issued an executive order. He bypassed the Congress and everything. And he wrote a decree that uh, went out to all his people, Egyptians and, and Hebrews, that if they saw or knew about any male baby born to the Hebrews, that baby was to be grabbed, taken away, reported to the authorities, whatever, and cast into the crocodile-infested Nile river horrible isn't it horrible no wonder god's first plague on egypt was to turn the waters of the nile to what blood exactly he was punishing egypt for her murder of israel's sons well when a jewish woman named jochebed delivered her third child her second son, 
It's always the second son, isn't it? Interesting. You know, Moses had an older brother, Aaron. He also had an older sister. What was her name? Miriam. But he was the second son. But her third child, he, he was a male. Okay? She gives birth to a male after this executive order is decreed. And uh, she, she looks at him and she sees that he's a good, he was a goodly child. Verse 2. Throughout the Pentateuch, what does she mean by a goodly child? Well, throughout the Pentateuch, written by the same author, you know, Moses, the word good is used in reference to something or someone made, created, given, or declared good by none other than God himself. That's how the word is used. Hebrews 11.23 which is also about Moses and his parents, says that uh, he was a proper child. He was properly, he was a good child. He was a properly, purposely created child. You know that every child, every child is good and proper to the Lord. Now, according to the Jewish records, Jewish Jewish tradition, the name of Moses was not originally Moses. (laughs) You know, Moses is not a Hebrew word. Now, I know a lot of Jews have named their children Moses after Moses, but Moses originally was an Egyptian word, and uh, he was named Moses by Pharaoh's daughter. But his own parents named him Joachim. Is that up on the board? Did I put that up there? Joachim. That's tradition, says that. And you know what that means? Established by God. Established by God. There is a very great truth in that name because every single child from conception is established by God. Who was in charge of the fertility? Who's in charge of conception? God, yes, absolutely. He is sovereign over everything. That means he's also sovereign over conception. No child is an accident, period. And don't ever say that in front of any of your children. Oh, you were an accident. Don't. No child is an accident in the eyes of God. Well, defying the king's edict and displaying great faith in God, Jochebed and her husband Amram the parents of Moses, hid their son for three months. Um, And for doing that, their names are etched forever in God's hall of faith, chapter 11, verse 23. That is the act for which they are in that hall of faith. The fact that they hid their baby in their home for three months and defied the king. Now, although, think about this, his birth and his gender, he was a male, came at a very dangerous time for the health of the mother, right? Hmm? But not only for the health of the mother, the health of the father, really the health of the whole family, because it isn't very healthy if you're all put to death for disobeying the king's decree. But although his birth and his gender came at an inconvenient time, Jochebed 
and Amram remained pro-life. Am I getting political? No, I am biblical. (laughs) They were pro-life, even though it could cost them their lives. Joachim's life, that's Moses, (laughs) was worth risking their own lives to preserve. You know, in contrast, and I'm really upset about this this week, as you know, probably, if you listen to the news, which you should. Uh, The pro-choice movement teaches, by example, that many children are not good, and they are not proper, and they should be terminated. You know what that is? Infanticide. I don't call, I care what you call it, women's reproductive health issues or all that verbiage that they give it. It's in fa- You know what abortion is? It is the equivalent of throwing a baby into the crocodile-infested Nile River. It is. It is horrific. Its proponents refu- refuse to see all children whether in or out of the womb, as the giver of life sees them. It is a horrible, horrible, horrible lie that abortion is not murder. You know? And yet, as with all sins, it is forgivable by our gracious God, is it not? Yes. He forgives if you come to him in repentance. And let me tell you something. God is the expert at taking that which man has meant for evil and using it for good, for ultimate good. Is he not? Now, I know in this country, I guess it's more than 57 million children have been aborted. But do you know where those children are? They are with the Heavenly Father. So that's the silver lining. It's still, though, it's, it, it, it's, I can't believe what they have just done in New York. And cheering about it to sign a bill that says it's now okay to kill a baby. I mean, they can't even use science anymore and say it's just tissue. Can't trick me. I've seen those ultrasounds when they're just that, you know, that big. That's a baby. But now to go 24 months or even full term or even after the baby is born and it's okay to kill it, that's not science. That's total selfishness. You know what it is? I'm getting off to preaching. But this is all part of the women's movement. It really is. It really is. We, you know, women want to be just like men. <laughs> even in California, you can't use he and she anymore. This world is getting so crazy. Well, this country. Um... But as women, you know, they want to be like men. We can do this. We can do everything men can do. Uh, If men can just walk away from a baby, so can we. So that's, you know, it's really part of it. It's the root of it. Of course, the root of it is total evil. Pharaoh's infanticide plan was cowardly. Because rather than doing battle with the strong Hebrew men, he ordered the death of the innocents. A sin that brings eventual doom to every nation that practices it. And this is why, 
If you wonder why our country is spiraling so fast downward, this is why the U.S. Supreme Court verdict of Roe v. Wade in 1963, along with the removal of prayer from our public schools in the same year, 63 and 64, those decisions rang out a clear death knell for our country. And there was just one more nail in the coffin last week when Governor Cuomo issued that horrible, horrible decree. Because, you know, that's just the beginning. There will be other states that will follow. Sad, sad. Well, when Joachim was three months old and he could no longer be kept safely hidden in his parents' home, Jacobed and Amram figured a way, they were very clever, they figured a way to obey the letter of the law without submitting to the intent of the law. What was the intent of the law? <laughs> the death of their, of their son. Now, probably thinking about Noah, Jochebed put her baby boy, she made a basket out of papyrus, um, she, and she, she waterproofed it, with just like Noah did, with tar and pitch. She waterproofed that basket inside and out, and um, she put her little baby boy in there, and then she very carefully placed it in the reeds, the tall reeds of the Nile River by the bank, so that the reeds would prevent the basket from floating away down the river and also prevent the basket from flipping over. So she was obeying the letter of the law. She put her baby in the Nile, didn't she? (laughs) But not the intent. She did not want that baby to die. Now, the only other time that the he, and the word for the basket in Hebrew is teba, T-E-B-A-H. And the only other time that you ever find that word in the scripture is in reference to Noah's ark. Not the ark of the covenant. That's a different word for ark. And now Noah's Ark also kept those within safe, right? Safe from the deadly waters. Actually, if you think about it, Noah himself was God's vessel to physically save humanity. Moses himself was God's vessel to physically save Israel. And Israel was the vessel from which would come the one who went down himself into the dark waters of death to spiritually save the whole world, all humanity. So the two arcs of Noah and Moses are prophetic witnesses or types, pictures, of the ultimate ark with a capital A, the Lord Jesus, whose salvation is freely available to all those sinking in a sea of sin. And everybody in this world is sinking in a sea of sin. You know, in Revelation 12, verses 3 and 4, Satan is described by John as a great red dragon. And he is continuously standing before the woman who pictures Israel. And he's ready, it says he's ready to devour her male child as soon as he is born. History, if you look at Israel's history, her history is full 
literally chocked full of satanically inspired attempts to annihilate her. People are still very anxious to do that around the globe, aren't they? And especially did Satan want to eliminate, cut off, and the messianic lineage from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, etc., David. Also her history, however, good news, is full of God's intervention to prevent Israel from being annihilated or amalgamated, intermarried, and just disappear as a people. And, of course, to preserve the messianic line. That's Israel's history. It's a continual battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of of the woman, between Christ and Satan. Well, Jochebed either knew about or inquired about the place in the river where Pharaoh's daughter came. The Egyptians were very, we learned this with Joseph, but they were very, very clean people. They took baths every day. That's good to hear. (laughs) Remember how the men were all, they, they thought beards were nasty and they were always clean shaven. Um, so they, she would bathe there every day. <clears throat> so Jochebed put her precious little baby boy near the, that location. And she also, also strategically placed his older sister, Miriam. You can read this in verse 4. She put Miriam, I don't know how old Miriam was, some say maybe 10, 11, 12. But she put her afar off and yet close enough where she could see what might happen with her little brother. So when the princess came with her maidens to the river's edge to take her bath, it was absolutely no accident. God orchestrates everything. He's sovereign. There are no accidents. It was no accident that it was her eyes that happened to behold a something over there in the reeds that was swaying. And so she sent her, um, <coughs> her personal maid to go fetch it. Go fetch that, whatever that is over there. And when the maid brought it to her and she opened it, the beautiful baby tucked inside did what? Get your baby to do it. (laughs) That beautiful little baby wept, cried, and never has there been a more providential time for a baby to cry. Because the daughter of the cold-hearted king immediately felt a compassionate connection toward that baby. And wouldn't you too, if you have any womanly instinct, motherly instinct, you see a baby crying in a a crocodile-infested water, and she connected. Although she knew immediately, and this is one of your homework questions, how did she know that he was one of the Hebrew children? Well, who else would put their child in the Nile River? And plus, he was circumcised. You know, they circ- I'm giving you the answer, by the way. Um, <laughs> the Egyptians circum- circumcised their boys, but not till they were 13. Um, yeah, ooh, ow. Um, and also, he was pro- he probably had a covering that was distinctly uh, Hebrew, you know, something that his mother made that had a Hebrew design or a he- Hebrew textile, and he probably looked like a Hebrew. <clears throat> they looked a little different than the Egyptians. <coughs> so she, even though she knew he was one of the Hebrews' children, and even though she knew he should be cast down 
take him out of the basket, cast him down into the river to die. She knew all that. She didn't do it. What did she do instead of casting him down? It says she took him up. Don't you love it? She took him up. Verse whatever. Oh, this is an Acts. I'm going back and forth from what Stephen said and what Moses wrote. But she decided right then and there she would adopt him. He would be her son. Now, they believed in gods, a lot of gods. They believed in a god of the Nile River. The Nile was sacred to them because all their lives depended on the, the Nile River. You know what the name of the river god, the Nile River god was? Happy. <laughs> he was a happy guy. <laughs> um, but anyway, she, um, she probably thought this was a gift from the gods. If this was Hat, Shepsut, who was an Egyptian princess, who actually became Pharaoh for a while. And that's one of your appendixes, so you can read about her. Her name is terrible for me to pronounce. But if it was her, she didn't have any children. And she was a very strong-willed woman. And a lot of people think this was the, the princess here in this account, this true account. Anyway, she, she was going to adopt him. Well, <clears throat> an amazing twist to history took place at that very moment. Pharaoh, I just, I got so humored. I was crying. As I'm studying this, half the time I'm crying, and the other half I'm laughing, because God has such a wonderful sense of humor, okay? Think about it. He thought, Pharaoh thought he was so clever in dealing with the Hebrew problem, right? <laughs> but the tears of a little infant not only defeated his plan, but eventually they led to the destruction, the drowning death of the entire Egyptian army. Is that not funny? <laughs> Is that not ironic? Is that not just amazing? Isn't that our God? Don't ever think the tears of a baby aren't powerful. <laughs> wow, there's an example right there. That's an example of God taking the weak things of this world to confound the mighty. Well, and think about this too. There was only one person in all of the land, one, who could get away with openly defying the king's edict by taking a condemned to death Hebrew baby boy into her protective care right under Pharaoh's nose, <laughs> actually making him Pharaoh's grandson. Only one person in all the land. And who was she? Egypt's princess, Pharaoh's own daughter. You know, likewise, there had only been one person in all the land who could and did take Joseph instantly from the pit of prison and put him as prime minister over all the land of Egypt. And that was the Pharaoh who knew Joseph, the kind-hearted Pharaoh. Does God use those in places of power to accomplish his own purposes? Yes, yes, whether good or evil or whatever. He's the one who sets up kings and takes down kings, and he uses them all for his purposes. We need to remember that. Risking potential death for herself and also for her family, for being connected to the basket baby, Miriam, Miriam, emerged from her hiding place. You're a real hero, Miriam. 
our music minister's wife's name, Miriam. Anybody else have that name, Miriam? Your mother. Anybody here in the room? Um, she emerged from her hiding place, and she, she noted she noted the soft look on the princess's face as she was peering down at her beautiful little baby brother. And she used the moment very wisely. She asked. She goes over to the princess. And this is a bold thing for a young girl to do. But she asks if she would like her to fetch a Hebrew woman to be her wet nurse. And Pharaoh's daughter is a perfect solution. And she says one word. You know, we only have one word recorded from the princess. And it's go. I got to thinking, wouldn't it have been nice if she was the Pharaoh <laughs> at the time of the Exodus? Let my people go. And she'd say, go. <laughs> of course, the one standing say, saying let my people go would have been her own son, right? Her adopted son. But that's the only word she says other than naming him Moses. She says go in verse 8. Well, when Miriam ran back and relayed the good news to her mother, there was another deliverance that day. A mother was delivered from a prison of fear for her own son. And in yet another amazing turn of events, again, very ironic, Pharaoh's daughter even paid wages <laughs> for Jochebed. Now remember, Jochebed's a slave. Slaves don't get wages. But she was paid wages to nurse her own son. Is God not amazing? Speaking of Miriam, well, now I just gave it away. Just gave away my trivia question. Oh, uh, well, here it is. You can ask somebody else. <laughs> Who was the first prophetess of Israel? Miriam. It even says Miriam the prophetess, Genesis 15. Who was the first song leader in the Bible? Female. Miriam. Isn't it appropriate your husband is the song leader? Did you know that? Check out the last two verses of Genesis 15. I mean, Exodus 15. Excuse me, Exodus 15. Well, now some would say, some would say that Pharaoh's daughter, um, the, her compassion was a sign of weakness. Was it weakness for her to defy her powerful father's decree, would you say? No, I don't think it was weakness at all. She, she did what was morally right, even though she was not a believer in God. You know, it says in Romans... Uh, chapter 2, 14 and 15, that God's moral law is written on the hearts and the consciousnesses of all men, even before he gave the moral law. This is all before the law, before the Ten Commandments. But she knew it was the morally wrong thing to do. Now think of this irony. Egypt's princess defied her father's edict to throw Hebrew baby boys into the water by taking a Hebrew baby boy out of the water. Ironically, she became the savior of Israel's savior. She became the deliverer of Israel's deliverer. 
That's why I called this the deliverance of a deliverer. Now, we don't know how many baby boys were sacrificed to the Nile at that time, but the evil practice could not have continued for very long. You know how we know this? Because there was a great company of Hebrew men alive to leave with Moses 80 years later. Remember, I told you there was over 600,000. So if this had gone on for very long, there wouldn't have been many men left. So we know this did not get go on for very long. It probably ended when his own daughter wouldn't obey it. <laughs> now, Pharaoh thought that his idea of sparing females was a safe thing to do. Remember, he said, let the girls go. Don't, don't kill the baby girls. So he thought that you know, sparing the females, that, would, that was safe. <laughs> and yet, it was five women who the Lord used to bring failure to his planned, plan to end Israel's existence. Who were they? Shipra, Pua, the midwives, Jochebed, his mother, Miriam, his sister, and his very own daughter. Is that not hilarious? Don't ever, ever underestimate the power of women. <laughs> Yay. Baby's tears and women. <laughs> now, when Moses was old enough to no longer need a nursemaid, and they say that usually they, 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 they um, would nursemaid their chi- nurse their children until anywhere from three to five. Long time. <sighs> um, Jochebed then... Um, brought him to the princess. Actually, she probably was brought into the palace to be his nursemaid. And then I was reading a lot about Egyptian history, and they said a lot of times um, the wet nurse, then even after that job was finished, would stay and become the baby's nanny, the child's nanny. And that's very possible from all that Moses knew about his own people and history, Jewish history. She probably was with him a long time and had that influence over him. So anyway, she brings him to the princess who adopts him, and the princess names him Moses. You know what Moses means? Drawn out or draw out because of the fact that he was drawn out from the water, the river. You know, that's interesting because one day God would use him to draw out Israel from slavery, from her bondage. Egypt's daughter saved him from drowning so that God could use him to drown Egypt's army. (laughs) Uh, As God had protected young Joseph. Remember, Joseph was only like mm, 17. He was 17. Uh, and he was his first he was God's first chosen deliverer of his people. Remember how God protected Joseph from dying of starvation or being devoured by a wild beast when his brothers threw him into that empty pit? He could have starved there. That was their original intention. God saved him, right? His first deliverer. Well, he also protected at a very young age his second deliverer. He delivered Moses from drowning or being devoured by a beast called a crocodile. God was also going to protect his third 
deliverer at a young age, with a capital D, by the way, baby Jesus, from the edict of another evil man, Herod the Great, in the slaughter of all the Hebrew baby boys of Bethlehem, two years of age and younger. Now, I thought of another comparison. If you don't think this is enough, it goes on and on for pages. All these contrasts and comparisons and types. It's just amazing, isn't it? Another one. Uh, and it's based on the Genesis 50-20 principle, which we just talked about. What, God, what man means for evil, God can use for good, does use for good. He used the evil intentions of Joseph's brothers, who had sold him as a slave, in order to get Joseph eventually into Egypt's palace so that he could save his own family from dying, from starvation. He also used Pharaoh's evil intention uh, of killing all the baby boys to get his next deliverer into Egypt's palace. If Pharaoh had never issued the Jewish male infanticide decree, then Moses would not have received the education that gave him skills, great skills, and writing skills and history skills, etc., to become the human author of the first five fundamental books of the scripture. Nor would he have learned the skills needful to make him a great leader of two million groaning, griping people for 40 years. Now, Stephen, we read this, he summed up the first 40 years of Moses' life as he was standing there before the Sanhedrin council in Acts 7, and he said this, and this is in verse 22, he said, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Egypt was one of the most academic and scientific societies of ancient days. They were wet. Do you know how they built those pyramids? No, it's amazing. I mean, they were really advanced. So Moses, being in the palace, he was instructed by the best teachers there were at that time. He was taught subjects such as history, grammar, writing, anatomy, agriculture, architecture, geometry, math, medicine, literature, science, music, geography, philosophy. He was taught all about law and government. He would have learned to speak all of the various languages of the people with whom Egypt had diplomatic or commercial relationships. How do you think he talked to the Midianites? How do you think he talked to his father-in-law and his wife, Zipporah? He knew all those languages. He knew the languages that Egypt dealt with. Josephus tells us that Moses, as a young man, led Egypt's armies in a victorious battle against the Ethiopians. He was being properly groomed for a career as one of Egypt's top diplomats or military leaders. More importantly, more, much more importantly, he had the influence of godly parents during his foundational years. Early childhood development is so, so important. If at all possible, stay home with your children when they're in their early years. That is so important. So he's, he's unique. He grew up to manhood. He grew to manhood in Egypt's palace. But 
he was also tutored in his Hebraic faith and roots from his parents. And he learned to have, he didn't learn to, he just did have a deep compassion for his confined kinsmen. It was not, do not, did I tell you this last time? Don't get your theology from Disney. Don't always, or Cecil B. DeMille. Um, By the way, remember I told you Charlton Heston um, went to my high school? I I didn't tell you, but also did um, Rock Hudson and uh, Margaret Mary. What was her name? This long red hair, Mary, Anne Margaret. And Margaret, yes, they all went to my high school. Whoopie-doo. <laughs> I told the women on Tuesday that um, my mother's older sister actually dated Rock Hudson. His name was not Rock Hudson. It was Roy Fitzgerald, and she didn't like him at all because she said he was a big bully. Well, those, that's just, that was all free. <laughs> when Moses reached 40 years... He made a uh, life-changing decision. The Lord put it in his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Now, I don't know where the palace was, but it wasn't like he could go out every day and visit them. You know, he was a distance from where they were in Goshen. So he decided to visit his, his own people. So the first recorded action of Moses was what? The first recorded action of his whole life, don't say it, yes, (laughs) his cry. That's the first recorded action of Moses, his cry as a baby. His second recorded action was that he went out among his brethren to see their burdens and hear their cries. Okay. Hebrews 11.24 says that Moses went out from Pharaoh's palace refusing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God. That was a purposeful choice. He wanted to get to know his own people. He wanted to converse with them, to empathize with the feelings of their infirmities. It wasn't an idea of his mind to do this. It was a yearning of his heart to do this. Moses would have learned from his mother how God had put Joseph in the palace of a previous pharaoh so that he could deliver, save his own family. He knew the story of how he himself had been snatched from death and put in the palace of another pharaoh. And it was also so that he could deliver his Hebrew family. Not from starvation, like Joseph did with his family in the famine. He would save his family from slavery, not starvation. He knew that. He knew that. I don't know, his mother told him that, or he just, the Lord told him in his heart. He just saw the the similarity. He knew he was saved for a purpose, and he knew it. We're told he knew it in the Bible. Just as uh, Jesus understood at a very early age, that he must be about what? His father's business. He's only 12 years old. So also Moses knew early in life that he had a divine purpose, which was to deliver his people. So when he was at the prime age to be a leader in Pharaoh's court, he made this firm decision to cast his lot instead 
with Israel, even though she was in slavery and he had been enjoying the comforts and luxuries of living in the palace. He didn't do this out of curiosity. He did it out of kinship. These were his kinfolk, as you all say down here, right? Like Christ, he was not ashamed to call them his brethren. He had great compassion for the plight of his people. He was there, going to be their kinsman redeemer. He looked on their burdens, it says in Exodus 2.11, and he longed to be their emancipator and the one who would alleviate their suffering. In this way, you can see it, you can already hear it, right? He also pictured the Lord Jesus who came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. Did not Christ also voluntarily relinquish all the riches and treasures of his kingly palace in order to be made of no reputation and to take on the form of a slave, a servant? You see all the similarities popping up already? Well, it didn't take Moses long before he saw one of his Hebrew brothers suffering from the unjust blows of an Egyptian who was probably one of Pharaoh's taskmasters who were noted for being extremely cruel and they had these long, heavy scourges that they would whip the slaves with. Filled with righteous indignation, Moses went on the offensive. Now, we learn later this guy was kind of, Sometimes he would snap. Remember when he smote the rock twice? <laughs> he had a, a bit of a temper. Um, I don't blame him here. But he went on the offensive. And uh, first, however, <laughs> he looked this way and he looked that way and he made sure that there was nobody watching. And then what did he do? He slew, he smote, he killed the Egyptian. Now, very possibly, he did not look around from a guilty conscience because of a guilty conscience. Uh, it, he looked around so he would not be accused to Pharaoh. <laughs> now, we tend to look at the Old Testament with our New Testament eyes a lot. But think of this. In effect, are still God's words to Noah. After the flood, the Noahic covenant and some of the words that God said to Noah include these. He said, whosoever sheds a man's blood by man, his own blood should be shed. Genesis 9, 6. If that Egyptian taskmaster actually killed the Hebrew, then this could justify what Moses did. But having said that, the fact is Moses did sin. Now, God had not yet said, thou shalt not commit murder. But Moses' sin, murder still was, you know, <laughs> everybody knows murder is wrong. Uh, but you could probably justify this, depending on exactly what the Egyptian did to the slave. But he still sinned because he sinned against God. He took matters into his own hands. After all, God said that he would deliver his people. Vengeance is his. Uh, Moses took justice into his own hands. What should he have done in that situation? He was Pharaoh's grandson. 
he should have grabbed the whip out of the guy's hand and taken him and reprimanded him or something, you know. He still would have gotten in trouble, you know, but, but he, he should not have done what he did. Uh, he ran ahead of God in his daredevil attempt to deliver his people in his own strength, you know, by his own hands instead of by the hands of mighty hands of God. After smiting the taskmaster, then what did he do? He buried, well, first of all, he buried him. <laughs> he hid his body in the sand. Now, that was a foretaste of judgment to come because 40 years later, the Egyptian army, uh, their bodies were hidden in the sandy waters of the Red Sea. On his first visit to his people, this was Moses. He's coming out of the palace, okay? This is his first visit to his people. Moses smote one Egyptian taskmaster. On his second visit, which would come after his long absence from Israel, you know, he departs and he's gone for 40 years. So the second visit, all of the oppressors of God's people would be smitten. In one way or another, they were all smitten by those ten plagues. And then the whole army was smitten and hidden, as I said, in the sands of the, of the Red Sea. Well, compare that with Christ. Christ's first visit, first coming to his people as their kinsman redeemer, what did he do? He gave a fatal blow to the head of the evil world taskmaster. Egypt is a picture of the world. He gave that fatal blow to Satan's head, did he not? If you ask me how Moses killed the Egyptian, I bet he crushed his head in just to fulfill the picture. On the Lord's second visit, after his long absence from Israel, he will smite all the world's evil taskmasters. The day after his execution and his burial of the Egyptian taskmaster, Moses then again went out among his people. And this time, what's he see? He sees two Hebrews, two of his kinfolk, <laughs> fighting, smiting. I mean, not just verbally, but fighting with each other. And doing what he confidently believed God had called him to do, which was to deliver his people, to destroy their enemies and to reconcile brethren that was what he knew was his job from God he asked the men uh, why they were smite why they were fighting with each other he says uh, well he asked the one at fault I guess he saw what happened and he knew which one was wrong the wronger of the two and he said wherefore smitest thou thy fellow that's verse 13 but over in Acts 726 Stephen says that he says to them also, why are you fighting with each other when you're bro brothers? Well, that started long ago with Cain and Abel, didn't it? <laughs> but uh, so that's what he asked them. Christ, the prophet like unto Moses, not only came to his own to be their deliverer from Egypt, but to bring peace to them while in Egypt. 
he sought to bring reconciliation between brothers. You know, when Jesus came to earth, not only were his people under the oppression of an evil world taskmaster, Satan, they were also under the oppression of the Romans, right? But in addition to being under that oppression, they were constantly fighting among themselves, bickering, bickering, bickering. Every sect of Israel hated the other sect. You had the Sadducees, the Pharisees. They were always at it, weren't they? And you had the Zealots and the Essenes and the Herodians. You know that the Hellenistic Jews despised the um, Hebrew Jews, and the Hebrew Jews despised the Hellenistic Jews, and most Jews despised the Gentiles, and especially did they despise those half-breed Samaritans. And the Samaritans and the Gentiles despised the Jews. And guess what? All the Gentiles were also fighting among each other, weren't they? Does it sound like today? Nothing new under the sun. No wonder there's a special blessing for the peacemakers. There aren't too many of them around. Well, what was the reaction of Moses' brethren regarding his first visit among them to deliver them from their bondage, to alleviate their suffering, and to bring them peace? What was their reaction? Well, it was exactly the reaction that the Lord Jesus received on his first visit to his brethren. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. The ungrateful, unrepentant Hebrew who had wronged his brother, his neighbor, thrust Moses away and said, who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Does that sound familiar? Moses' Jewish brothers felt enmity toward him. You know what? They probably envied him. They envied his beautiful, fine Egyptian clothing, his Mercedes chariot. (laughs) I did that for your sake, Mercedes. I could have said Cadillac or something, Lexus. (laughs) Uh, They envied his special privileges, just as Joseph's brothers envied him, didn't they? His special coat of many colors and his dreams and his father's love. And just as the Jews envied Jesus. The Hebrews misunderstood Moses. They thought that he had emerged from his royal position only to lord it over them and to judge them. They did not realize that he had come as one of them to save them. Well, following the sarcastic question from that Hebrew came a very ominous threat. With sneering menace, he uh, asked Moses, do you intend to kill me like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Whoa, where were you hiding? I thought I'd looked all around. Maybe he killed him and didn't think the Hebrews would care. Maybe there were other Hebrew slaves around, and he was just looking to see if there was another Egyptian around. He didn't think a Hebrew would care if he killed that awful taskmaster. So rather than receiving Moses as as an agent of God, you know, an angel of God who had come to rescue them, instead of thanking him, for his zeal and for his concern for his own people and thanking him for having willingly forsaken the palace to take up their cause, the Hebrew pushed him away, verbally and 
and physically. His own would-be deliverer. His words were really a veiled threat, weren't they? That he was going to report him to the authorities for murder. Moses was convinced that God had put him in his unique position of being a son of Abraham in an Egyptian palace, like Joseph, to use him on behalf for the benefit of his own people. He was convinced of that. He was right about that. Totally right, wasn't he? But he was wrong with another assumption that he made. According to Stephen, Moses supposed his brethren, his brethren would understand the truth about him. He thought they would get it. I've come to rescue you. I'm your deliverer. Don't you see the comparison of me with Joseph? Don't you get it? He thought they would understand. But here's what Stephen said. But they understood not. You see, Stephen, oh, when we studied Stephen's sermon, I just fell, I was infatuated with this man. His knowledge of typology is amazing. Just amazing. He was very wisely using typology to accuse the first century Jews of doing the very, very, very same thing that their forefathers had done. Except with one far greater than Moses. What had they just done? Exactly. They, they did that to their own long-awaited Messiah Savior. He had come, finally. He had come among them to deliver them. But they understood not. And they, what did they do? To the just one. Stephen calls him the just one. What did they do? They thrust him from him. Who made you a prince and a ruler over? You know, we have no king but Caesar. Did exactly the same thing. Jesus expected it because he knows the end from the beginning. He's God, right? He knew it would happen. He predicted it. Moses didn't. It shocked him when they did not accept him. He figured the Egyptians would become his enemies when they understood that he was taking up the Israelites' cause, but he didn't expect the hostility that he received from the very ones whose misery he desired to relieve. That just shocked him. It probably depressed him deeply. But, and so the man's threat worked. He realized that if this man knew about what he had done in murdering the Egyptian taskmaster, others would know, and it wouldn't take very long before it reached the ears of his grandfather, Pharaoh. And uh, he fe- it actually says he feared what his powerful step-grandfather would do. He may have also feared what it would mean for his mother. Well, look what you've done. Brought a Hebrew who's taken up the cause of the Hebrews into our own home. You know, it put shame and reproach on her. I don't know what his thinking was, but he definitely feared what would happen. And so he packed up his goodies and he left Egypt. However, the rejection of Moses at his first appearing was all part of the providential plan of God, was it not? See, he wasn't quite ready to do his work He needed a little bit of schooling on the backside of a desert with a bunch of dumb sheep. (laughs) Well, he may have fled to the Midian Desert. And I give you, did you get your papers? 
Okay, there's a map, and you can see where the, the path he took. That was a long journey over to Midia from Egypt. Um, he might have fled to the Midian desert to escape Pharaoh, but he did not flee from his call to stand for justice. So when he gets to Midia, there's a well. Oh, the well encounters of Scripture are so fascinating. Remember we talked, there's another appendix in your notes when you get your email lesson about the well encounters where men go to a well and they eventually meet their bride, their future bride, three of them in the Old Testament. This is the third. And they all foretell the picture of Jesus at the well with the Samaritan woman. Anyway, he comes to a well. He sits down near it, and pretty soon seven sisters. You ever see that movie? It always reminds me. Seven brides for seven brothers or something. I love that movie. It's so cute. All right, so here come these seven sisters, and they're Midianites. And they come out to the well to water their father's flock. Their father's name is Beverly Hillbillies. Oh, Jethro. I thought, no, I got the wrong one. That was Jeb. Who was Jethro? The son was Jethro. Okay, Jethro. His name is Jethro. He also has another name, Reuel. I don't know why he has two names. Anyway, um, they're the daughters of of, uh, the Midianite Jethro. And they come out to water his flock. And you Midianites, they were descendants of Abraham through his second wife, Keturah. Now, they're not included as part of Israel because they didn't come from, you know, Isaac and Jacob. But um, they still retain knowledge of the true God of Abraham, although over the years they had also by and large turned to the worship of a multitude of gods, unfortunately. But their father was a priest, and we'll talk about him as we go on next time, not today. All right, once the sisters filled their the water trough with water um, to feed their flock, their father's flock, what happens? These other shepherds show up, probably guys. They come along, and they're a bunch of bullies. And they drive the girls away and let their flock drink up the girls' water that they had just poured in the troughs. Well, they're getting away with that, and apparently... The way the story, the narrative goes, they had done this frequently. This was a common thing. Nowadays, they'd call them misogynists, right? Okay, they're doing that until Moses stands up. Hmm, prime of life. Big, strong guy, Charlton Heston. And he gets involved and single-handedly delivers those seven girls from the bullies. And that's pretty good. You know, I don't know how many shepherds, but he did it all alone. Then he assists the ladies in watering the animals. What were the names of these girls? I think their names were Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Oh, yeah, there was Zipporah. But she did represent the whole church. If you're following me. Okay, anyway, after reporting to their father the, the heroism, they, they ever, all the women at these wells always would run away. You know, they'd, they'd get all excited and they'd leave water pots and they'd forget what they were doing, you know. And so they ran and they left Moses there. Now they thought he, they called him an Egyptian. So what does that tell you? He looks like an Egyptian. He has an accent of an Egyptian. And they say this, you know, they tell him the story about what happened. And Jethro, their dad, looks around. He says, well, where is he? What's the matter with you girls? <laughs> you didn't invite him to dinner? He just say, yes, you know, helped you out and everything. And you didn't. And so 
Hebrew tradition says that Zipporah, one of his daughters, I was being silly about their names, but Zipporah ran back to the well alone to invite Moses to dinner. And the tradition says that because her name, Zipporah, means little bird. And tradition says she flew like a little bird back to Moses, (laughs) who accepted the invitation to dine and wound up staying 40 years. Watch out who you invite to dinner, (laughs) right? (laughs) Now, his deliverance of the seven daughters from cruel shepherds who drove them from the watering well, which led to Moses gaining a Gentile bride. He married Zipporah, didn't he, the little bird? All this pictures Christ who left heaven's palace to not only deliver Israel, but to also drive away the many false shepherds who had been over and over and over again robbing the Gentiles of the living well of life found only in Yahweh, Jehovah. He not only came to deliver Israel, He came to call out a bride, didn't he? Those seven sisters picture the church, Zipporah specifically. But the seven sisters, you know, this church is represented, Revelation 2 and 3, as seven churches. Seven, I got to thinking too, my mind just goes, you know, this is why it takes me so long to put together a lesson. But I got to thinking about the five women who saved Moses from from death And then the seven sisters, five plus seven is 12. There's Moses' 12 disciples. (laughs) That's probably getting carried away, but I have fun with it. So in Midian, Moses, the one-time prince of Egypt, became a shepherd. Who despised shepherds? (laughs) He was an Egyptian prince, and now he's a shepherd. Who else was a good shepherd, a great shepherd, the chief shepherd? Yes. Moses' job of caring for sheep prepared him for the day that he would no longer lead his father's sheep, his father-in-law's sheep, for 40 years. It prepared him for the day he would lead his father's, capital F, sheep, for 40 years. And the people made the care of the sheep look like child's play. Easy peasy, take care of the sheep, taking care of the people. Like I said, bottles and bottles of Excedrin migraine. Moses lived as a Midianite as long as he had lived as an Egyptian. 40 years, 40 years. Well, in Exodus 2.23, we learn that the king died. Now, I don't know which king there's, oh, you can go on and on about who the Pharaoh was, but this might have been the same one that had the death edict for all the baby boys, but I doubt it because he'd have to be about 100 years old. So there were other pharaohs, and one was just as bad as the other, but whoever was the pharaoh at that time died. And with his death, the Israelites, it says, sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried. It had taken them, you know, God was not only preparing Moses to be the right kind of deliverer, you know, training him up to did not do it in his own strength, but he was working on Israel. She too had to get to the point where she was really crying out to God, please deliver us. 
And so that's what she was doing. And in his infinite mercy, it says he heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant promises that he would, you know, bring them back to the land, etc. Um, and, of course, they're crying out for deliverance. They did not know that he had already started that deliverance work some 80 years earlier when he gave birth to, uh, to Jochebed with her third child, Moses. On the backside of the desert, he, who had been raised to be a somebody, learned who he really was in the sight of God. He was a nobody. <laughs> you don't get a lot of applause and acclaim for being a shepherd, do you? The sheep don't stand up and applaud and say, thank you, thank you, thank you for saving me from that big bad wolf. But he learned what God can do with a nobody. In closing, I've just got to get this in. I want to mention one more amazing typological truth. Now, to Pharaoh, the killing of the Hebrews' seed, their children, seemed like a very wise way to crush the infant nation. Remember, Israel is in the womb of Egypt. He thought this was a great way to stop that nation from rapidly multiplying in his land. While Stephen was standing there boldly, before all the collective pharaohs of his day, Israel's Sanhedrin council. That council was full of a bunch of pharaohs. They were, at that very moment, in the first stage of attempting to stop the fast multiplication of the church in her infancy. You get it? The church had just been born she was like Egypt. She was in her infancy. And the Sanhedrin council did not like how she was beginning to grow, multiply. And so they had a plan to persecute her, to annihilate her. But that plan would prove to be just as ineffective as what Pharaoh had tried to do with young Israel. Why did Pharaoh's attempt to annihilate Israel fail? Why? He fa it failed because one of them rose from the place of death, the Nile. One of them rose from the dead. In spite of all the persecution of the young church, which began in force, you know when the persecution really began of the church? Right after Stephen, when they killed Stephen, and then it took off. Um, the, the Jews discovered that the followers of Jesus only increased. The blood of the martyrs is the... Seed of the church. The more they persecuted the church, the more it grew. Who said that, Connie? She's gone. Anybody else know who said that? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Connie's usually the one I call because I don't know why she remembers Tertullian, but she does. It was Tertullian. Why, why did the church continue to increase and multiply as much as the Jews tried to stop it? Same reason. Because the one upon whom our faith is founded, literally rose from the dead. You know, Moses was just figuratively rising from the dead. The consequence for Israel, after she thrust Moses from her, and he completely disappeared from her, she thought he was dead. Oh, where's that Moses guy? I haven't seen him. Oh, gone for 40 years. They completely forgot about him. They thought he was gone, dead. But during that time, where was he? He was with the Gentiles and with his Gentile bride. 
In the meantime, while he was with the Gentiles, gone from Israel, Israel was going through all kinds of additional trials in her bondage until finally, finally, she began to cry out to God. The same thing happened to Israel when she thrust from her the one like unto Moses, Jesus, her true deliverer. And since then, she has spent a long period of testing and trials and bondage to the evil taskmasters of this world. Has she not? She's still suffering today from the taskmasters of this world. You see, her deliverance has been postponed. For as with Moses, Jesus has been in the meantime abiding with his Gentile bride. But, but he will come again to deliver Israel. Did Moses come again or did he stay forever in Midian until he died? You see, those who say God is finished with Israel are wrong. Because it would not complete the typological picture. Moses came out of the desert. He returned to his people a second time. And we all know uh, that when he returned the second time, it wasn't in his might and strength. It was in the power of the great I am that I am. Who he will talk to next time. So be sure to tune in (laughs) two weeks. Let's pray. I'm sorry I kept you over. Father God, thank you for the hunger of your people, for their attentiveness, for I hope the fact that they're getting it and seeing how marvelous your word is, how awesome you are, God. You had it all figured out, all these beautiful pictures fulfilled in your son, our Savior. Thank you for sending our deliverer, our true deliverer. And I pray with all of my heart that everyone, every woman in this room or anyone who ever hears this message by audio, that they truly have come to know their Savior and have not thrust him away from them but have embraced him and thanked him in true repentance and gratitude and said, thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus, for saving me for all of eternity. And we look forward to that day when you do return. And we say, even so, come quickly, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. God bless you.